Good morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning and you are with Lyle and... Jasmine! Jasmine! So good to have you on the radio this morning. Jasmine, how are you this morning? I'm very good this morning. Are you very good? How are you? I'm amazing this morning. Ah, that's good to hear. Yes, absolutely. What are you thankful for this morning? What makes you very good this morning? uh, My neighbours. Your neighbours, okay. I'm very thankful for my neighbours. In particular, uh, one neighbour who is kind of diagonally across from my house. So I'm living with the pastor of my church and his family. So all their cars take up like their driveway and out the front of their house. Um, So I've been parking over on this other neighbour's beside his house on his, like on the edge of his lawn and they've been very gracious in letting me park there all the time in their spot so and they're really nice so I just talk to them he chats and he gardens and so it's a good time awesome that's amazing it's always good to have good relationships with your neighbors because the reality is if anyone is going to look out for you look out for your house when you're not there any of that kind of stuff mm. know what's going on it's going to be your neighbors mm. so you should always get to know your neighbors and be good friends with your neighbors whenever you move into a new area it is uh, just the best idea. Okay, so ask me what I'm thankful for. Lyle, what are you thankful for? I am thankful for camping trips. You were all wondering, where was Lyle yesterday? Lyle was camping in the mountains. And it was, yeah, it was kind of cold, but oh my, what a weekend. It was just, the weather was amazing. Yeah, cold, was good but just bright sunshine every day. Well, and it's blue right there. What were you doing while you were camping? I was uh, relaxing around a campfire and staring at the fire for long periods of time and um, exploring and went hiking and various other activities. It was just a really good time. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Positively different news. What is happening? 100%. Lyle, have you ever heard of the Cross River Gorilla? No. No, neither had I. Because it is the world's rarest great ape species. Okay. So there's only about 200 to 300 left in the wild. That's their estimated um, amount so, there. So, so it's called the Cross River Gorilla. Yes, Cross River So does it live, live on either side of a river or does it regularly cross a river or does it live in the region of the Cross River? Uh, I'm assuming so. that It lives in the areas that are only found in the areas of... Uh, Cameroon, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, and yep. Nigeria in, okay. um, in that area. So they're only found there. But what is really amazing this morning is that uh, there's been rare photographs taken over the last, um, the course of the last couple of weeks of these in the wild. Now, it's really amazing because the last time these guys were seen in the wild was back in 2012 was the last time these guys were spotted in the wild. Um, so there's been a group of them that have been caught on, um, on photograph and on camera, and they have not only been seen in groups but with young children, which is really exciting. That's cool. um, And not just like one or two, but in groups with a lot of, uh, a lot of young. So it's really exciting that um, they can see that they're actively reproducing, and so hopefully we'll be able to see those numbers climbing back up in the very near future. It's always good to see... You know, a species that has come back from the brink. Yeah. Um, we've had, you know, quite a number of those over the years and we sort of thought, well, we're going to lose this species and that species and then suddenly they're back again. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Fantastic news right there. Yeah, yeah. so the, these uh, apes, they're conti- 
considered critically endangered, which is very, um, very close to extinction, really. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of organizations doing amazing work to, for their conservation. And if you want to get involved, you can actually go onto the World Wildlife Fund. You've probably heard of them. They're quite a big one. And adopt one of these gorillas, which is really cool. So if you're, if you're an animal lover and you really want to get behind them, you can go and adopt one of these it's symbolically. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You're just donating to the Wildlife Fund. But that's you a, probably that's all don't need to set up a gorilla cage in the house and get ready. <laughs> but, um, but no, very cool. Do you, get to, do you get to name the gorilla that you adopt? Oh, I don't know. That'd be that cool. would be very cool if you could. I think you should. I think you should be able to name it. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, if you go on and check out these photos later in your own time, um, it's very interesting that they can actually differentiate this type of gorilla from other gorillas because I was looking at it and I'm like, oh, that looks like an ordinary gorilla. <laughs> but uh, it's very cool. These guys have longer arms, if you can imagine a gorilla with even longer arms. Uh, they have lighter hair and just a slightly different face shape. So... Um, yeah, they look much like a, a regular gorilla, but it's very cool that um, there's actually so much differentiation in one particular. I wonder why group. they call them cross river gorillas <laughs> rather than long armed gorillas or yeah, very slightly pale gorillas. Yeah, I'm guessing that that area just has a lot of rivers there, and they can they cross it at will. So. Maybe because they have long arms, they can swing across rivers, and so they're called cross river gorillas. Yeah, you, you never know. Wikipedia will give us an answer sooner or later, but uh, that's a fa- that's fascinating. Yeah. What else is happening around the world? Uh, so some more really cool news that's happening in Africa is Google has sent out a group of giant floating balloons to serve as internet providers over in remote uh, regions of Kenya. Really? Is, yeah. I, so I, these are like tethered balloons. Um, yeah, they're so... I don't quite know how they work because I'm not a tech genius, but basically they're sending them off from America and um, they let them go. And wind currents are supposedly... They set them off at a, at a particular place. So they oh. make it all the way down into Kenya um, and they, yeah, they have some kind of a transmitting um, device to give internet to that part of the world. Um, and they are supposedly supposed to cover an area of 50,000 square kilometres with, I think it's 35 of these internet balloons. That's a cool idea. Yeah, really, really cool. Really, you wouldn't really cool. want to run into one when you were sort of flying past in an airliner. Yeah. But I guess there's not many airliners flying past at the moment. <laughs> yeah, my, my biggest question probably is how do they... How do they, like, they get to this place by wind currents, but how do they make sure that they stay in this particular area to give... Well, that's what I'm thinking. You'd have to tether them. They'd have to be tethered because the wind currents would just cart them off to somewhere else and somewhere else would suddenly be getting great internet. I was like, oh, fantastic. It's like, oh, and then it died. Yeah, Um, yeah. So they'd have to tether them, but that's okay. That's possible. The, the, The question that goes through my mind is that last time that our world used tethered balloons, they were called barrage balloons, and they were tethered above cities for the purpose of, uh, you know, having enemy aircraft fly into them in the middle of the night when they couldn't see them. Yes, it's a very different approach to the same idea. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and uh, I'm just sort of thinking, okay, we're going back to tethered balloons. What does happen if you fly into that thing? Mm. But anyway, um, I think this is, this is a great idea because, you know, this is a part of the world where knowledge can transform the world. It's just a matter of getting knowledge to those particular locations. I've been to Africa and getting internet 
you know, service and particularly anything that's even remotely reliable or with any kind of speed is very challenging indeed. Yeah, definitely. They they decided to um, initiate this project. It's called the Loon Project. And they decided to do it because of the, um, you know, the problems caused by COVID-19. And they really wanted to be able to make sure these guys had access to the information on that kind of a thing. But they've actually done this um, thing before. So they know that it um, was going to work. They did it in Sri Lanka as well as in Puerto Rico. Um, that was in the aftermath of the hurricane there, Hurricane Maria, I think it was. Um, they did it there and it was very successful. So I guess they decided this was the best way to go about it in remote Kenya as well. Cool. Awesome idea. That's that's fantastic. And I guess, uh, you know, in all of these locations, you know, you don't have there, there'd be ways there there are ways so that aeroplanes don't fly into this i don't yeah. know why i'm stuck on this yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like oh well it's probably maybe at just a different height level um I'm, I'm not sure and they would have transmitters on them so it'd be like don't fly here mm-hmm. um there is a balloon here all that kind of stuff i'm sure and of course you know as we mentioned there's not really anyone flying these days the skies are pretty empty yeah covid and all not much happening around our world, right? We're going to have a bit of a COVID update in a moment because um, I went away camping for like two days and the whole world changed when I got back. Locked Oof. out of Sydney. What, how, whoever saw that coming? Oh, yeah, true. Um, two days ago. But anyway, that's our world these days. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Well, joining me on the phone this morning is Pastor Samuel Green from uh, Tasmania who has written a book called Where to Start with Islam. And this has recently been nominated or shortlisted for the Australian Christian Book of the Year. Pastor Samuel Green, welcome to the show. Uh, It's great to be with you. Thank you. So you've written this book, Where to Start with Islam, just, I guess, as a, a place to start. What inspired you to tackle this particular subject? Well, I became a Christian when I was 19. I was at university, and a man shared the gospel with me. And I started to, um, you know, I understood that I had to share the gospel and, and that the message of God's grace was for everyone. And as I started to do that with my friends, some of them were Muslim, and what I found was that they were prepared to talk to me about Jesus in the way, in a way that other people weren't. And so I felt that we needed to do, uh, you know, and, and it really began right back then, a long, long time ago. And I've just been developing materials over the the decades, and there came a point where I, I wrote a book about it. Fantastic. Uh, before we actually get into the book, maybe you could just share with your listeners what you're currently doing. I think last time we spoke, and it's been a while since we spoke. It was like the beginning of the year, so it's taken a while for the, to get this uh, this interview organised. Uh, you're working with the University of Tasmania, is that right? Yes, I work with the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students, right. and we're um, we're a ministry to the university campuses of Australia. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, so the um, the book that you've written here on where to start with Islam, what makes your book different from other books in starting conversations with um, Islamic people? Yeah, that's a great question. And what I aimed to do in this book was not just to repeat what had been done elsewhere. I, I think I need to go back a little bit, and that is we need to understand where we fit in history. And what I mean by that is Islam comes about 600 years after Christianity. 
And what that means is that when you read the Bible, you never read about Islam. You don't read about the apostles evangelizing Muslims in the book of Acts or anything like that. And so the result is Christians don't learn about Islam directly from reading the Bible. For Muslims, it's the exact opposite. Uh, because Islam comes 600 years after Christianity, they they learn about Christianity all the time from reading the Quran. The Quran basically rejects, <coughs> excuse me, rejects every aspect of the gospel and trains Muslims to reject every aspect of the gospel. And so what it means is that Muslims learn about Christianity from being a Muslim, whereas Christians don't learn about Islam from being a Christian. Now, what this means is that, and this comes to answering your question, when we then write um, books for Christians about Islam, we, we tend to write... You know, here are the five pillars of Islam, you know, the confession of faith, the five daily prayers, the pilgrimage to Mecca, the giving of money to Islamic causes, and uh, the, the fasting during Ramadan. You know, we, we t- teach people all the, the pillars and the basic beliefs. The problem is that when you talk to a Muslim, they don't talk to you about that. But that's what our books on world religions sort of teach people. Um, when you talk to a Muslim, they talk to you about what the Quran says about Christianity. And so what I've tried to do in my book is not to tell you the five pillars or anything like that, but to actually say, what is it that the Quran says about Christianity? And in looking at that, it actually prepares you for the conversations you will have. Right. That's a that's a interesting. Do you think that? Uh, and, and I've got a couple of questions I want to come back to that just sort of in, in, in a moment, um, just coming out of what you just said there. But. Uh, do you see a similar thing? And and I was just doing some th- some some thinking about this because when you've got a new religion that comes along, it has a need to be able to justify its existence. Therefore, it will be able to address the previous religion that it has, in many ways, come from. And so, Islam, you know, coming six hundred years after Christianity. Has is almost born with that need of being able to address Christianity. Is there a parallel when you come to the uh, great Protestant Reformation of the 16th century where Protestants also have that need to address Catholicism? I'm not talking about you know evangelicals, but Protestant in the word protest, the, the protest movement that took place then. Was there a parallel um, just from a historical perspective uh, between those two movements? I would say yes, but to a lesser degree, but yes. And so if you go to most Protestant theological colleges, if you study there, then you will learn about the Reformation. That'll be a major section of your church history. You'll learn early church history up until the council, uh, up until the Chalcedonian definition. And then you'll most likely go to the Reformation. And so you'll miss about a thousand years of church history because um, as Protestants, we're interested in the the early church and the Reformation and and then modern theology after that. Um, So I think that that does define what Protestants do as well. And of course, with Protestants, the problem there with our Protestant theological colleges is that we miss out the, the medieval Roman Catholic period, which also happens to be the Islamic period. And so... In our colleges, we don't have uh, a history of teaching people the history of the church under Islam, and that's uh, a, a great shame and a great um, trouble for us, actually. Mm. 
if we come down to uh, you know 600 years after Christ, of course, the Christian Church had become you know incredibly corrupt with uh, you know Christianity in general, with you know idolatry and you know worship of saints and images and you know all of these kind of uh, things that had crept into Christianity. Now, Protestantism addressed that in the 16th century. Um, Islam, when Islam comes along, also addresses the uh, corruption of Christianity as far as you know the, the the multiple saints that people were praying to and idols and images and so forth. A very strong reaction against that was: did, did, Can Islam be seen in many ways as uh, the Reformation in the East that the West um, had? You know, a, a lot of years later. No, no, it can't be seen that way because for two reasons: the the criticisms that the Quran has of Christianity are not really about saints and the use of icons, so it doesn't it doesn't really criticise those. In fact, Muhammad is the patron saint of Islam. Uh, Muslims pray to Muhammad and they, you know, they imitate him, so he functions in that medieval patron saint world. Uh, so Islam in no way removed that type of practice, and it didn't remove idolatry. They have a black stone idol in Mecca that they all go and kiss and basically worship and seek Allah's blessing from. So it didn't really remove saint worship or idolatry. Uh, Those practices are still practiced in Islam. And its criticism of Christianity is, uh, as I mentioned before, is actually the gospel. So it says that Jesus only appeared to die on the cross. Right, so he only appeared to die. So that, that's a criticism. It says that Jesus is not the Son of God. It says that there is no Trinity. Now it doesn't understand the Trinity. Muhammad calls the Trinity God, Mary, and Jesus. So he has an outsider's view. But uh, but he still, you know, the Quran says, "Say not three," and it actually prepares Muslims to reject the Trinity. So it, you know, it rejects the incarnation. The fatherhood, the son of God, salvation by grace, uh, the death of Jesus on the cross, or, you know, it only appearing, uh, the Trinity. So that's its criticisms. And I'd want to say that that's actually the gospel. So, um, that the, the Quran is just really, uh, you know, attacking the gospel in the end. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that, of course, Islam will, one of the, one of the, uh, criticisms or critiques that Islam will often level at Christianity is that, um, you know, our version of the Bible um, has been corrupted over the centuries, whereas the Quran, because, you know, they've particularly they've kept it in the one language, it's in, it's in Arabic, and they haven't allowed, you know, the multitudinous different translations that we have in Christianity, um, that they've been able to keep the Quran very pure as to its original source while the the Bible is corrupted. Does the Quran actually say, is there anywhere, whereabouts in the Quran, does the Quran actually say that the Bible as we have it is corrupted? No, no, I've got a chapter on this in my book uh, where I go through what the Quran says of the Bible. And the, the Quran is clear that the Bible is to be treated equally to the Quran. Uh, and so it, it says we make no distinction between the prophets and their books, and that comes up many times. In fact, in Surah 5, uh, chapter 5, about verse 47, it actually says that the gospel that was given to Jesus is what Christians have, and Christians are to follow what they have from Jesus. And so it's very clear, uh, if you just take the Quran on its own terms, that Christians have 
the Word of God. No distinction is to be made between it and any of, you know, between the Quran and the Bible. It ought to be treated the same. And Christians are to obey what they have in their book. It's interesting you mentioned that because I've got you know quite a number of Muslim Muslim friends I should say not really but friends who um, have really come to this conclusion that the Bible is equal with the Quran and in many ways that has elevated their view of the Bible uh, compared to you know a number of other Muslims that I know who are like no the Bible is corrupted um, and. You know, I see that as positive because anything that uh, elevates the Bible is is definitely a positive move in the right direction. Okay, so if the Quran doesn't say that the Bible is has been corrupted, then why do we? Why do so many of uh, you know Muslim people that we we come across sort of you know when we start to talk about Christianity, why do they then go to this place of the Bible being corrupted if the Quran doesn't even say that? Oh, look, you've asked the perfect question. You've asked the obvious question. And that is because the Quran makes certain claims about the Bible. So it, 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 it addresses Christians and it says to Christians, you should believe the Quran because the Quran confirms the teaching of the Bible. Right? So this is one reason. And, uh, and of course it doesn't. It doesn't teach the fatherhood of the Son of God. It doesn't teach, uh, the, that we need a, a priest to offer a sacrifice of atonement to come into God's presence. You know, it, it doesn't teach the gospel message. So it just doesn't teach almost anything to do with the earlier prophets. Um, and so they have to explain this, and they explain it by saying the Bible must be changed. Now, there's another reason as well, and that is how the, the Quran in chapter 7, verse 157, says that Muhammad is foretold in the gospel and in the Torah. And, and so Muhammad is meant to be foretold in the Bible. You're meant to be able to look at the Bible and say, there is a new prophet coming who is going to be Muhammad. And of course, when you do read the Bible, you don't find any references like that at all. And so they say, well, why aren't there any references? Now, rather than just saying, well, Muhammad got it wrong, instead they blame Christians. And we actually need to understand what's happening. When, when Muslims attack the Bible and say Christians have changed the Bible, they're actually blaming us for the failure of what Muhammad said. Okay, so it's not a nice thing, but but that's what happens. The Quran makes certain claims uh, about its authenticity and the authenticity of Muhammad. These claims are, uh, look to the Bible for their evidence. When you read the Bible, it's not there, and so they then blame us for it not being there. With uh, with the Bible, of course, we've got some very old manuscripts. You know, your Dead Sea Scrolls, your, your copy of Isaiah, for instance, is uh, you know possibly you know two thousand one hundred years old, and we can compare those with manuscripts we have today. There are some minor differences. Uh, but what about the Quran? Do we have ancient manuscripts of the Quran? Do we have an original copy? Um, are the older manuscripts different from the newer ones? Okay, um, again, I, I go through this in my book, um, and I'll take you through all the details of all the references. Uh, y- yes, we do have old Qurans, and so just as we had the Dead Sea Scrolls discoveries, which you mentioned with the Isaiah Scroll, we've had a similar discovery in Islam in uh, Sana in Yemen, and that was where uh, they had a mosque down there, and they were putting their old Qurans in this mosque from the very early centuries, and walls got built around other walls, and these old Qurans just got left there, and the, 
that they just stayed there until they were discovered, uh, I think, in the 1970s. Now, they do show um, different Qurans. And so, um, in summary, Muhammad never wrote the Quran himself. He never issued what you would call an autograph, uh, a standard version from him. He died and the Quran was uncollected and it was his companions who made multiple collections and, and made their own different versions. And so in the early centuries of Islam, there were synoptic Qurans. Just as we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there were synoptic Qurans. There were there was the Quran according to Abdullah ibn Masud, the Quran according to Ubay ibn Kaab, the Quran according to Ibn Abbas, and you know there's a whole lot of them. Now, what happened was um, having these different Qurans at first wasn't a problem, but then later on became a problem, and so they they made one standard version, and uh, the 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 Islamic histories, what are called the hadiths, they record that they burned the rest. And so there's a wholesale standardizing and burning of the Qurans to standardize one Quran. So it's sort of as if we kept Matthew's gospel and got rid of Mark, Luke, and John. So to be honest, it, it's a fairly hollow claim when Muslims say the Bible's corrupt and there's one perfect Quran. Uh, you know, just, just from that historical point of view, and even today, there are 10 major different Arabic Qurans used around the world. So there's not just one Quran. And again, my book takes you through all this. Uh, the, the Arabic script only uh, included consonants and all the vowels and everything else weren't included. And so how you put those vowels on and how you made the consonants uh, changed over time. And so they developed these different Qurans that we have in the world today, and so it's it's a it's a false claim that Muslims make. But I have to admit, most Muslims don't know about the different Qurans. It's, it's a fairly technical thing. Increasingly, they are finding out about them now. Um, but you know, they're definitely there. There's a whole range of different Qurans around the world. Fascinating, uh, Pastor Samuel Green. We are out of time, but thank you for joining us here on Faith FM this morning. Uh, Pastor Samuel Green's book, Where to Start with Islam. Um, you can find that in uh, Kurong and um, Christian Book stores if you'd like to grab a couple for yourself. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. It is now time for... Question of the Day. Jasmine, what is our question of the day? That was amazing. Oh, our question of the day is why was the raven sent out from the ark? Why did Noah send out the raven? Okay, so this is very interesting. Um, when you read the biblical narrative, there are two different birds that are sent out. The first one that is sent out is a crow. Mm-hmm. A raven is a crow. Um, the, other, the second one is a dove. Now, what is interesting is that doves and pigeons in the Bible are the same bird. Mm-hmm. So we differentiate them today, but they're the same bird today. And the one thing that I guess pigeons are renowned for is that they are a homing bird. Yeah, They will come back to their home to roost. And so Noah uses both of these birds. Now, there's some, there's some kind of cool symbolism here that I haven't really fully got myself to the bottom of because in the Bible, the crow is an unclean bird mm-hmm. and the dove or the pigeon is a clean bird. Yes. Uh, in fact, the dove or pigeon can be used in the services of the sanctuary as an animal of sacrifice, as a symbol of Jesus Christ. Yeah, we see it all the time. Yeah. Uh, we did back in the day when they did sacrifices. 
In the Bible we see it all the time. Yeah, in yes. the Bible we see it. I was like, yeah, you know what? I haven't actually seen that one recently. <laughs> I was like, where's Jasmine going with this one? Um, okay, so here's something that will fascinate you. Yes, I'm ready to be fascinated. Think about the Vikings. Mm-hmm. How did the Vikings navigate? Now, we know this. The Vikings sailed from you know Norway and places like that where the Vikings came from. Mm. And they sailed to England. That's pretty easy. Yeah. You just go west and you're going to hit England. It's hard mm-hmm. to miss. But they also sailed to Iceland and created a settlement in Iceland. Yeah. That's a much smaller island, an island about the size of Tasmania, I guess, thereabouts. Really? Smaller. Mm-hmm. In the middle of the ocean. How do you get there? How do you navigate there when you don't have a compass or a timepiece? Yeah. Oh. Okay, then they sailed to Greenland and made a settlement there. Yeah. That's across the other side of the Atlantic. And then they sailed to North America and made a settlement in North America. Yes. That's a very, very long distance. So the Vikings did all that. Okay, guess how the Vikings used to navigate? So my guess would have been the stars. Yes, they navigated with the sun, the moon, the stars, and crows. Huh. So basically it worked like this. You take a bunch of crows in a cage on your voyage. Yes. Every now and then you would let one free. It would climb to a great height looking for land because it wants to find land. It's sick of being on this Viking ship. It's cold and miserable and wet. Mm-hmm. Um, it would, if it saw land, it would fly directly towards that land. So it's like mm-hmm. sending up. It's, like, it's, it's, it's the Viking version of us sending up a drone. So this is where we get as the crow send, flies. We, yeah, that's right. They'd send up a drone um, and have a bit of a look around. Yes. And then, <laughs> if you wanted to find land, you would sail as the crow flies. That's where exactly ah. where you get it from. Okay. Now, if the crow flew out over the stern of the ship, that's the back of the ship, then they were still sailing away from the. Mainland. Yes. If the crow flew forward, then the crow had obviously seen land forward of your position and you would sail as the crow flies um, in a forward direction. You would simply mark your course by the direction that the crow takes Mm -hmm. and it would take you to land. Now, if you send out a a dove or a pigeon, of course, it's going to come back and land on the ship because they're a homing bird. Mm -hmm. And so Noah... Um, probably use the same method, send up a crow, see if the crow goes a particular direction, mark what direction it goes, and there's probably going to be land over there. But then he sends out a pigeon, it comes back with an olive leaf in its mouth, 